Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. Acts 11, 1 through 18, it reads, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking closely at it, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you, are, you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on us at the beginning, just as on us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand, could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who am I, he says, to stand in God's way? I want to preach to you this morning on that theme, standing in God's way. Standing in God's way. Let's go to God in prayer and ask Him for His help as we study this text. Father, we come to You humbly on our knees, recognizing that without You, we are nothing. We thank You for Your revealed Word, God. As I preach Your Word this morning, help me to preach Your truth, not just simply my own ideas. I pray that we would receive Your Word. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears so that we might hear Your truth and and uh, count it as good, as right, as beautiful for our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Ninevites were a brutal civilization. It's possible, scholars say, that even in Jonah's lifetime, or within a generation or two, the Ninevites had slaughtered many Israelites. Some scholars have assumed that Jonah's own parents could have very well been in the slaughter. And so then God comes to this man named Jonah, and he says, I want you to take a message of salvation, redemption, repentance, to the Ninevites. And Jonah tries to get in God's way. 
Now, we can understand it. The Ninevites are a different people, a different ethnicity, a different culture, and they've actually been brutal to Jonah's own people. God calls Jonah to take this message of redemption to these wicked individuals. Have you ever wondered why Jonah ran the other direction? Have you ever wondered why Jonah thought he could just flee what God was doing? Uh, I think it's because Jonah despised the Ninevites. And so Jonah sought to stand in God's way, and as you know, as the story goes, Jonah ends up in the belly of a fish. Are you trying to stand in God's way? Is there somebody that God wants to save and has maybe called you to be his ambassador of light, his proclaimer of truth, but you are standing in God's way because they are too different, not the kind of people that I would associate with. Are we standing in God's way, and can we get in God's way? Or would we say with Peter, who am I to stand in God's way? You see, God is saving for himself a people of all kinds. God is saving for himself a diverse and multicultural and multi-ethnic and multinational people from the projects to the mobile homes, from Hollywood to New York, from the United States to Uganda, from America to Asia. And we can't get in the way of what God is doing because we prize our own culture, our own people, our own way of life more than the suffering it would take to take the light of the gospel to them. Two ways that we can get in God's way. Number one, we could, we could go below the line of God's word and not require of people what God clearly requires. Meaning God is trying to do something. And I'm not saying that God, that God can't do I'm not putting God in some helpless category. I'm just saying that in a general sense. God is trying to do something, all right? God is doing something in somebody's life. And here we come along and we tell them, well, you don't really have to follow that if you don't like it. This doctrinal truth, what the Bible teaches on this category, on, on you know, if the Bible says to be baptized, to be, submit yourself to a local church. If the Bible says something about our sexuality and, and uh, the, the beauty of uh, gender and, and, and uh, sex within marriage and just all of these sort of things. If the Bible says something about uh, our, our love for other people and our inability, our, our, uh, we are not allowed to hate other people simply because uh, they are of you know, a different culture, for example. And we, and we tell people, well, it's actually okay to, to disobey God in these areas. That's what I would call below the line. We're getting in God's way and we're not actually discipling people to follow Jesus because we're not telling people they really have to follow Jesus. Are you with me? The second way that we get in the way is that we go above the line. Meaning, we require more than what God actually requires. 
We say, not only must you follow Jesus, but you also must follow my, follow my cultural values. You also must follow my traditions, my habits. You must assimilate into my culture in order to really follow Jesus. That's what I would call above the line. It is requiring cultural conformity. Now, this can happen intentionally. I would say that it generally happens unintentionally. As a matter of fact, we, what we see here in the text is what I think to be an unintentional above-the-line command, a, an unintentional call to cultural conformity. I don't doubt that the circumcision party here in Acts chapter 11 was sincere and truly concerned. Meaning, I think that often when we are calling for an above-the-line cultural conformity, it can often be done out of sincerity and unintentionality. What we have here in Acts 10 and then Acts 11 is the conversion of Cornelius. And as I explained last week, this story is central to the book of Acts. We know that because of the sheer number of words that Luke, the author, uses as he explains the conversion of Cornelius. Why is it so central? Well, it's because Cornelius is the first full-blooded Gentile. The first fully, he is not somebody who has been converted into Judaism. He is not someone who would be, have been considered a worshiper of Yahweh. Yet he is a Gentile. What we see in Acts 10 and Acts 11 is that the gospel of salvation has crossed that bridge and gone to the Gentiles, people like probably most of us. Now what we saw last week is that God does not show what? Partiality. You remember my sermon from seven days ago. Well done. God does not show partiality according to our culture, our traditions, our, our habits, and our assumptions. As we turn the corner into Acts 11, what we see is that if God does not show partiality according to our culture, traditions, habits, and assumptions, then we cannot show partiality in our fellowship according to culture, traditions, habits, and assumptions. There's something that's really crazy ironic that happens in this chapter. So in chapter 10, we saw the conversion of Cornelius. Let me give you a quick recap. He does it for us in chapter 11. He recaps the details of chapter 10 with a little bit more detail. Uh, in verse 5, he tells us that this sheet, this is Peter talking, he went to a trance and a sheet was let down in this vision, and the sheet had four corners, and he says that on the sheets was a smorgasbord of all kinds of, of uh, uh, meat on skewers that's coming to your table, all right? He saw animals of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and then he heard a voice that said, Peter, rise and kill and eat. Now, Peter was a good Jew, and they had a ceremonial law uh, which said that some meats are clean and some meats are not clean. And what God is saying is, is like, look, that whole ceremonial law has been 
accomplished, been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, all right? Jesus is the clean one. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one that we find our purity. And so therefore, as we go through Jesus, you can eat bacon. You can eat pork. Like the ceremonial laws are no more because Jesus has died as the final sacrifice. And so he says, go ahead and eat. Now, Peter, being a good Jew, like I said in verse 8, he says, nothing common or unclean has ever, ever crossed my lips. Like, I've, I've, never, I've never done this. This is kind of weird. I don't know what bacon even tastes like. I would feel a certain way if I take a bite. I would feel kind of guilty. I can't do this. And so Peter actually resists what God is doing in his life by not eating. Well, Peter then gets it as the vision happens three times, and then there is a knock on the door. He gets this visitor, a couple visitors that show up, sent by this man named Cornelius, Cornelius the Gentile, who also had a vision. And in his vision, God uh, sent an angel to him, and the angel said, Cornelius, go find Peter, and Peter is going to tell you what to do. So these visitors show up as Peter comes out of the trance. I mean, it is just so clearly the work of God in Peter and in Cornelius' life. What Peter discovers then is that this vision, while it is about food secondarily, it is not about food primarily. What he discovers is that it's actually about people. That there is no people group that God calls common. There is no culture, there is no ethnicity, there is no skin color that God just disregards and says, oh, that's just a regular folk, that's just common folk. But rather, everybody is not only created in the image of God, but worthy of receiving the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, and check this out, not just forgiveness of sins, but inclusion in the family of God inclusion into God's people. So therefore, cultural barriers come down. As we discussed last week, we're not talking about cultural distinction going away. And so like culture, we're going to get into this a little bit more, but culture is beautiful, it's good, it's right. Like it's okay to have culture. We should not be a bland, strive for some like cultureless society. What goes away is cultural divisions. Our cultures no longer divide us from one another because we are brought together in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ and we are first and foremost then citizens of his culture, the kingdom of God culture, which then transforms the way all of us think about our own cultures and live as citizens in this, in this world. So Acts chapter 11 verse 12 then sums up the whole point of Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. He says, and the Spirit told me to go with them, to go to Cornelius' house. And he says, go with them, making no distinction. That word, making no distinction, could literally be translated, according to the Greek scholars, without discrimination. Go, take the good news of salvation the good news of Jesus Christ, and do it with no discrimination. And as a result, then, 
we see as chapter 10 closes that Cornelius and his whole household, his family, his servants, friends, come together and they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right there in verse 1, then, where it says that they receive the word of God. According to Luke chapter 8, verse 13, the same author uses that same phrase, receiving the word of God, particularly applied to someone who receives the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Christ is the Savior of the world. So therefore, the question then becomes, if they have indeed received the gospel of Jesus Christ, are we allowed to refuse fellowship to them? That's the question that, that Acts chapter 11 is diving into. Can we refuse fellowship to somebody of a different culture, different tradition, different background, different ethnicity, different color, because of all of those things? If they have truly received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately what happens is the apostles here, before, before Peter even gets back to Jerusalem, the apostles hear of what's happened in Caesarea. News quickly gets to the apostles that Gentiles are believing. The Gentiles have been baptized. And it says that the, the apostles hear this in ver verse 1, and uh, 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 the news spreads throughout Judea. They heard that they've received the word of God. By the time Peter gets back to Jerusalem in verse 2, not everybody is rejoicing. By the time Peter gets back to Jerusalem in verse 2, we see this new uh, character develop, uh, and it is this group called the Circumcision Party. The Circumcision Party. When Peter arrives, the Circumcision Party is not happy about what has gone down. They are not happy about the fact that, uh, that this, this Gentile has been fellowshipped with, has been eaten with. You see, going all the way back in the Old Testament, Gentiles could become Jewish converts, and they would be circumcised. According to the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's all of these ceremonial laws that were attached to their worship to distinguish Israel as a clean people, as the people of God. But then, as the story goes on, all of those ceremonial uh, uh, things are accomplished in Jesus Christ. So why is it that there is this party of people that are enforcing all of these traditions? Look at verse, look at verse 3. In Acts chapter 11, verse 3, this is their criticism of Peter. They say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's more than just a statement. They're, that's like saying, what's up with that? How are you, you going to do this? Uncircumcised men. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this might be very strange for you. They're actually, yes, they are actually talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. Circumcision, according to the ceremonial law, was God's sign that you are part of the covenant people of Israel. 
And like I said, Gentiles could be circumcised. The problem with Cornelius is that he was not required to be circumcised. He uh, was a, uh, left alone, all right? Won't go into any more detail. Now, a uh, hundred years, I mentioned this last week as well, I'm doing some recap here, but a hundred years before Jesus came, there was a bunch of Jewish tradition and teaching that came together as, as extra-biblical application on how to follow God's law. And according to the book of Jubilees, it said this. It says, separate yourself from the nations and do not eat with them. Do not uh, do according to their works. Don't become their associate, for their works are unclean, and all their ways are a, uh, 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 an abomination and uncleanness. The circumcision party would have been this group of, P- of Jews who were converts to Christianity, yet they were maintaining the Jewish ceremonial laws. What you can eat, what you can't eat, what days to celebrate, what days not to celebrate, all of these Jewish laws that they maintained. Plus, they were hanging on to all of the Jewish teaching traditions. So therefore, in their mind, it was a slippery slope to be fellowshipping with a Gentile. You're getting too close to falling away from God. And so as they see Peter, their issue is not just the fact that Peter told them about Jesus. Don't you see that? What's their issue? It's it's table fellowship. It's the fact that you sat down at Cornelius' table and you actually ate with him. Eating, uh, fellowship, association, that's the issue here in Acts 11. Which later becomes a bigger question on church membership. Are they actually members of this body? I mean, that's what this all has to do with. Meaning, can we bar people from church membership because they are of a different culture? Because they have different traditions? Are we allowed to discriminate? The crazy thing about Acts 11, I said there's something ironic in here, and this is the irony is that the circumcision party, in requiring more, are actually requiring less. Let me explain that. In Acts chapter 1, they are commanded to go to who? From Jerusalem to Judea to to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the circumcision party problem is as they require Gentiles to culturally, ceremonially, ceremonially, and traditionally become Jews through circumcision, as they require that above the line, they're actually going below the line and not taking the gospel to Gentiles. You see what I'm saying? And that applies for us today. Whenever we require more, of what God has required. We are actually going below the line and not loving people in the way that God has required. Yeah, God said in Romans, if somebody honors a certain day, let them. And if you say you're not allowed to honor that day, aren't you going below the line in what God has clearly required? Humans have a 
tendency, and I think this just trickles into the church. I think it's in the church and it's in the world. For you to be my friend, you've got to assimilate to my culture. In the church, we might put it this way. For you to be a member of this church, you need to assimilate into our culture. In order for you to be in fellowship with us, you need to assimilate into our culture. Meaning you need to leave your culture at the door as you come in and recognize that you're coming into a different culture. You can't be you in this church. This is cultural assimilation. Now, culture is a beautiful thing. I love culture. I love going, traveling different places. I don't care where I go. I love traveling different places and seeing different cultures. It's always interesting. However, culture can also be a, 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 a tricky thing. Cultural superiority can sneak up on us. And cultural superiority is maybe often always blind. Like there are a hundred unknown reasons why we think that our fellowship style, our communication style, our music style, our worship style is superior. I'll, I'll give you some, some examples. If, um, let's say that in, in, in a church, if email is the only method of communication with the church members, could that not be a cultural superiority that actually ignores those who don't have access to computers or internet or, e or doesn't use a uh, email? Maybe they, it's a culture of text messaging or IG, all right? It's, it's a cultural disconnect. And we can unintentionally require an assimilation into a certain kind of communication style. Or let me, let me use another one. When Montrell first moved here some years ago, uh, I remember he came, he's this boy from like Georgia, uh, uh, rural, rural Kentucky. Young, young man, little guy. How old were you when you came? Georgia. Look, I think, I'm from Ohio, I think of Kentucky and Georgia is the same thing, really. 25 years old, just a little guy. He came up to me and he was like, he was like, this person asked me to go out for coffee. He was like, what, is that, what does that even mean? Like, do we just, are we just going to like sit and drink coffee? I don't even drink coffee. I was like, no, no, it's fine. Like, just, you know, you can just get, like, hot chocolate or something. You know, asking somebody to go get coffee may not always be the most culturally appropriate thing to do. You might actually bar some people from fellowship with you because of your method of trying, trying to get fellowship with them. I'll give you another example. Just recently, we've been calling a bunch of members and talking about uh, community and friendship in, in the local church. And one thing that I, I've discovered is that some people in our church find a formal invitation to dinner to be like, I'm seen, I'm noticed, this is good. I'm, th I'm thankful for that. Whereas other people find a formal invitation to dinner to be nice, but kind of contrived. And I really find friendship and fellowship when I know that I can just pop into your house at any time 
and eat the food out of your fridge. You see, there's a cultural disconnect that can happen. Or another thing could be dress, the way we dress. You know, do you have to dress and look a certain way to enter into our fellowship? You know, in our church, we pride ourselves on the fact that you can dress any way that you want. I always tell people, I point to David Scott and I say, we even accept suits here in our church. Like, however you want to dress is, is, is fine. Cultural disconnect. In our cultural superiority, we have a tendency to write off entire people groups in our mission. Why worry about the guys in the projects? Why worry about the rich in Roland Park? Why worry about the Muslims in Saudi Arabia? Why worry about those that live in the mountains in the Philippines and don't have access to any church? Why worry about the kids in the slums of Nairobi? We have a tendency to dehumanize and and to just write people off and to say that they are not worthy of me worrying about their salvation, taking the gospel to them. You see, in order to move on in this mission, we must die to ourselves. There is a sense of suffering that happens when we die to our own selves. Our brother Eric just sent me this quote yesterday from John Stott, and I thought I would read it to you because it fits so well into this topic. John Stott said, The place of suffering and service and of passion and mission is hardly ever taught today. But the greatest single secret of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is willingness to suffer and die. It may be death to popularity by faithfully reaching the unpopular biblical, uh, uh, with, preaching the unpopular biblical gospel. Or to pride by the use of modest methods in reliance on the Holy Spirit. Or, listen to this, or to racial and national prejudice by identification with another culture. Or to material comfort by adopting a particular lifestyle. But the servant must suffer if he is to bring light to the nations, and the seed must die if it is to multiply. I wanted to read that to you because, and I'll read this again, because of how he connects this to suffering. He says, The place of suffering in service and in passion for evangelism is skipping down by dying to our racial and national prejudice by identification with another culture. Have you ever thought that extending yourself to people who are different from you, who are not like you, who are of a different culture, tradition, habits, and assumptions, is actually a form of suffering for the gospel? Now, I think that's an important point because I think the reason that we are prone to discrimination is because we don't want to be uncomfortable ourselves. We don't want to suffer. And so it's easier to not have to wrestle with my own culture, my own value system. It's easier to not have to do these things and to just require everybody to sing like me, to be like me, to look like me, than it is for me to have to extend myself in some fashion. But see, the gospel calls us to suffer. This is one application of suffering for Jesus. It really is. It's to be in a church that looks like this, where we lay down some of these things that we cling to. We don't lose them, but we no longer are divided by them. And it creates some 
awkward conversations at times. It creates some unintentional offenses at some time, uh, sometimes. But we are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Nobody is common, church. Meaning everybody is worth crossing a border, crossing a culture, crossing a sea, so that all might know Jesus. Yes, this applies to us here in Baltimore and even in this room, but this also, I hope, is an encouragement for some of you to think about crossing a sea and taking the gospel to a people group that have never known the name of Jesus for the sake of his glory. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Jews eating with the Gentiles? Answer, everything. Because what they were doing was they were taking an extra-biblical preference and adding that on top of their culture, or on top of their fellowship, rather. Requiring this in order to enjoy table fellowship with one another, and it broke down the community, or it would have broken down the community from the get-go if they had allowed it. So how might we be then like the circumcision party? Number one, we might be like them in elevating our own culture. Secondly, we might be like them in in elevating our own traditions. Now tradition, like culture, is kind of a tricky thing. Like tradition is inevitable, and tradition is also wonderful. Someone said once, they said, to those who argue that tradition can kill a church, know this. The second time you do anything, it becomes a tradition. Like, our church is a traditional church. We've got our traditions. When our, first, when, when our church first started, I remember we had people that first started coming to our church, and they're like, man, I'm so glad to like, not be in a traditional church. And then like five weeks later, they said, hey, uh, we haven't ever set the chairs up like this before. <laughs> I remember early on, Man, I'm so glad that we don't just sing hymns like the traditional churches. And then I introduced a hymn. They were like, hey, we don't sing hymns in this church. Isn't it funny how tradition just hooks us? And we think we're so cool and hip and non-traditional. In reality, we just cling to maybe dumb traditions. Traditions without meaning. Now, some traditions are good, all right? Traditions are not bad. There's an old saying that says, tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those now living. You see, traditionalism happens when we take our traditions and we build a whole worldview around them. And we require people to be like us in our traditions in order to enjoy fellowship. Also, sometimes traditions are literally based on nothing. It's literally just what we've done. Like, I can't even tell you why. I heard a story, of, or read a story of a daughter who was learning to cook ham. Her mother was teaching her how to, how to cook a ham, and her mother cut off the small end of the ham and put it into the pot, and the little girl said, she said, Mom, why did you cut the small part of the ham off? And the mother said, well, my mother taught me to do that. And so the little girl went to her grandmother, and she said, why do you cut the small end of the ham off before you put it in the pot? And she said, well, my mother told, taught me to do that. So the little girl went to her grandmother and she said, why do you cut off the small end of the ham to put it in the pot? And the, the, the grandmother said, because my ham would never fit into my pot, so I had to cut off the small part of the ham. <laughs> Sometimes we do things for no reason, we just do it because that's what we do. 
My, my point is this. With our traditions, let's hold them lightly. But let's hold our convictions tightly. We hold our convictions like this, but we should hold our traditions with an open hand. Thirdly, third way we can be like the circumcision party is we can elevate, we elevate our own guardrails. Here's what I mean by this. Guardrails can be good in Christian discipleship and sanctification. What I mean by a guardrail is an additional kind of rule that we put up in our life to keep us from falling into sinful patterns. So, as an example, if you struggle with drunkenness, to not drink any alcohol could be a very good guardrail to put up. Um, if you struggle with pornography, a very good guardrail could be to get rid of your smartphone and to have no internet in your home. If you struggle with relationships, a good guardrail might be to get rid of your social media. But what happens is we can sometimes be prone to elevating our guardrails and enforcing them on others. So therefore, you should not drink a drop of alcohol, you should not have social media, and, 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 and you should not have internet in your home. I actually know of one pastor that was on the news a couple years, uh, maybe a year or two ago, that required his members to delete their Facebook accounts and was going to discipline any member that did not delete their Facebook account. What is that? That's, that's elevating. You know, it might be good for you to delete your Facebook account, but it's elevating our guardrails and requiring people to follow them so that they don't fall into this slippery slope of sin that we are concerned for, uh, for ourselves. Elevating our guardrails, elevating our tradition, elevating our culture. Now, the circumcision party, getting back to the circumcision party, they do these three things. They're elevating their own culture, they're elevating their own tradition, and they're also saying, hey, our guardrails of not even eating with a Gentile uh, needs to be followed by, by, by you. And so they make this accusation, you ate with the Gentiles, what's up with that? I want you to see then as we nearly close our message, I want you to see Peter's skill in his defense. Peter didn't get defense, defensive, all right? Peter didn't just go on the defense. He didn't get all huffy and puffy with the circumcision party. He didn't just write them off and say, oh, you guys have no clue. But Peter actually, clearly, wants to win the circumcision party. He wants them to see the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they too might enjoy fellowship with Cornelius and all of the other Gentiles. And so, look at his defense. He makes two undeniable claims in his defense in verses 13 through 16. First, in verse 13, Peter, Peter recaps uh, everything that goes, uh, goes on. In verse 13, he says, And he told us, Cornelius that is, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you must be saved. Now in verse 14, there are two missiological truths that we can walk away from. Number one, Cornelius was not yet saved until he heard the message of salvation. There are some theologians who use Cornelius as an example of the fact that God can save somebody apart from the gospel message being preached to them. Because Cornelius was praying, God heard his prayers, 
um, and, and said, I'll send you, send you Peter. But how do we know that Cornelius was not actually saved until Peter came with the gospel message? Well, we're told this right there in verse 14. He will declare a message to you by which you will be saved. He was not yet saved until Peter met with him. We, look, God could have just told Cornelius the gospel through the angel. But God has elected human beings to be his, his messengers to spread the gospel truth to all people. I don't know why he doesn't use angels, but he doesn't. He uses us. Romans 10 tells us how. How will those who have been called believe? How will they believe if they have not heard? How will they, not, how will they hear if someone does not go and preach to them? And then he concludes, he says, how beautiful then are the feet of those who preach the good news. Secondly, the gospel knows no ethnic or cultural boundaries. We know Abraham, all right? God promised to Abraham that through his seed, he's going to bless the entire world. Church, how is that going to happen? How is the whole world, even Gentiles like Cornelius, going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham? Of course, with Moses, the law was developed. In the law, there was all of these ceremonial and sacrificial signs. As part of it, for example, there was a scapegoat that was used. And they, they would uh, put, put all of the sins ceremonially onto the scapegoat and then kick him out of the camp. And he would, as it were, usher all of the sins outside of the, the people of God, outside of the camp. Still looking for the seed, waiting for the seed. Finally, in the Gospels, the seed comes. Somebody say amen. amen. The seed is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the clean one. Jesus Christ is the representative of all God's people. And Jesus Christ is also the scapegoat. So when Jesus hung on the cross dying, God put all of the guilt of our sins onto Christ, sent him outside of the camp, so that those who are in Christ, the people of God, might be freed from all of our uncleanness. That's the hope of the gospel message. Your sins have been paid for by Jesus. That's how we can stand before God. This gospel is to go to all people everywhere. It knows no cultural or ethnic boundaries. But rather, all people who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ are saved. Listen, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, do it now. Has there ever been a time that you have cried, cried out to God, forgive me for my sins? I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior, my only hope in life and in death. He is your only hope. Turn to Him now. The Gospel is freely offered to you this morning. Receive that Gospel of Jesus Christ. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Claim it as your own. And know that God has forever freed you from the guilt of your sin. And one day, those who are in Christ will be raised to walk uh, in, in new life with God forever and ever in an actual flesh and blood, recreated world, forever freed from even the presence of sin. The gospel message is offered to all. That's what we see here with Cornelius, is that the gospel clearly went to the, the Gentiles. 
Secondly, not only that, but the Holy Spirit of God has also filled the Gentiles. This is Peter's second undeniable evidence. The Holy Spirit has filled the Gentiles. Look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 11. He says to the circumcision party, as I begin to speak, he says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it was at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, why was it that they spoke in tongues in Acts 10 as they received the Holy Spirit? It was a sign of confirmation that the same Spirit that filled the Jews in Acts 2 has filled the Gentiles in Acts 10, and he came with the same sign, which is multiple languages, tongues. This is not to be a, something that we experience regularly as people are saved today. It was a sign maybe even just for the circumcision party, to know that the same Holy Spirit who filled us has filled them. There's not two spirits, there's one spirit. There's not two peoples of God, there's one people of God. There's not two churches, there's one. You tracking with me? Now, Peter says, I've got these two undeniable pieces of evidence. And then his, his logic becomes airtight. He says, if this, then that. If salvation, then fellowship. If the Holy Spirit has filled them, then fellowship. Look at verse 17. He says, if then God gave the same spirit, uh, the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? So I want to close with this question. Who am I to stand in God's way? If God has saved someone who is so different from me, so unlike me, who am I to stand in God's way? Well, what would it mean, Joel, to stand in God's way? What it would mean is this, is I don't fellowship with that individual. That's what it means. If I refuse to fellowship, if I refuse to eat with this individual, then I am standing in God's way. Oh, they're already saved. That's no question. But the display of the gospel is in our love for one another. The display of the gospel is in our fellowship with one another. Here's the whole point of my sermon. Since God saves across ethnic and cultural barriers, we are standing in God's way if we refuse fellowship based on those ethnic and cultural barriers. Two quick takeaways as we close. Number one, unity without truth lies about Christian unity. My goal is to not remove truth and just pursue unity. My goal is, is not that we just become a multicultural church. That's really never been my goal. People have asked me, do you want to be a multicultural church? I'm like, I just want to reach people. But I think reaching people means, especially in a city like Baltimore, that we're going to be loving people that are different from us. But we don't set aside our biblical convictions in order to achieve unity. That's false unity for the believers. We don't set aside our ecclesiological convictions, our theological convictions, but rather we, we build, if you would, a, a house of truth. And there's a door into that house. Uh, that would be baptism, identification with the local church. 
but that we are then united then in this house of truth. If we take away the truth, family, we've got nothing that unites us. You'd look at me like, I don't even know why I'm hanging with you. You are so weird. No, we are united in the truth. At the same time, secondly though, truth without unity lies about Christian truth. Let me, let me give, you, give you those both ways. Unity without truth lies about Christian unity. Truth without unity lies about Christian truth. So in verse 18 then, we see the critics are silenced. Why is that? It's because Peter has shown them that there is this foundation of truth that we have with the Gentiles. And if we refuse fellowship then, if the circumcision party refuses fellowship with the Gentiles, then they are lying to the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel connects us with God, the gospel also connects us with each other. If God shows no partiality in who He is saving, then we show no partiality in who we are fellowshipping with. The application of the gospel is in our love. Now, I love verse 18 because I think there's a change with the circumcision party. They seem to get it in verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying... Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Their prejudice is turned to praise. When they see the radical grace of God going forward to all kinds of people, their prejudice is turned into praise. Family, when we encounter this radically inclusive, impartial, cross-cultural grace of God, our own prejudices turn to praise. There's a story of a young couple who moves into a new neighborhood and, and she was looking out the window at the neighbor hanging up laundry on the, on the, on the laundry line and, and she said to her husband, she said, I can't believe that this woman does not know how to do her laundry. The, the, her laundry's dirty. The next week, she saw the woman hanging laundry again, looking out the window. She says, it's dirty again. This woman doesn't know how to do laundry. About a month later, she looks out the window, neighbor's out there doing laundry, and she says, oh wow, she must have got some new detergent or something because her laundry looks really good. And her husband smiled and laughed and he said, no, I actually just cleaned the windows. <laughs> don't, you see, don't you see, church, that sometimes... Listen, we can't see what God has done in somebody's life because of our dirty windows. We, we can't see that God has actually done something, changed a life, brought the same spirit that I have to them, filled them with the same spirit. They are worshiping the same God that I'm worshiping. They are convicted about sin in the same way that God has convicted me about sin, yet I can't even see that because I've got dirty windows. I, my windows are, are stained with, with my own traditional and cultural superiority. And because they don't look like me, then I can't see what God is doing in their life. Let us take these barriers down. Don't you know that sometimes 
we can't see God's work because our prejudices just simply get in the way. And we look at them and we say, nah, they just don't get it. Church, God takes what has been discarded by the world and cleans it, uses it for His purposes. There's nothing that's discarded that God can't pick up and use. Like me, me when I was a child, my M&Ms would fall on the floor, and I believed 100% with all of my heart that if I picked my M&Ms up and blew them off, that they would be cleaned of all of the germs. And my friends would drop their M&Ms, and they would discard them. But I was the cleaner of M&Ms, and I could pick my friends' M&Ms up and blow them off and eat them. <laughs> Listen, church, God takes what has been discarded by the world and truly cleans it, not just through a little blowing it off, but Christ was lifted up so that our sins might be put on Him, so that we might be truly cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if God can clean me, He can clean anybody. Amen? Our prejudice then, our own prejudice turns to praise. When we see that God has saved somebody who's so different from me, praise Him. Praise God. Praise Him because God is not like me. Praise Him because God is bigger than me. Praise Him because God is more gracious than me. Praise Him because God is more global than me. Praise God for what He is doing in everybody's life. Amen? Amen. Our, our own church, I, I praise God when I see our own church gather. You know, when I see Montrell over the years have coffee with somebody, just to love that person. And he's done it. I've actually been with Montreal. He's like, all right, I'm going to try coffee this time. Get, go back to my hot chocolate. When he extends himself. Praise God when, when his wife Jody calls my 14-year-old to, to see how she's doing with her Bible reading. Praise God when I see Cindy and Angelo taking walks together down Utah. Even after Bible study this week, Eric bumped me and he said, he said look, look at what God has done as people interact with each other. I saw Johns Hopkins brainiac Kwame Kuten having a conversation with high schooler Tyler. I, 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 I saw uh, West Baltimore native and retiree Mitchell lingering in conversation with, with PG native and Morgan State grad Mike Afalabi. Like people that probably wouldn't otherwise be lingering together in friendship and fellowship with one another. God has brought together a diverse, blood-bought people, a collection of human beings. And when we see it put on display, does it not commend Jesus Christ? Is this not how we show the love of God to the world around us? Is this not, in our love for each other, how we give glory to Him who loved us? If God has saved him, if God has filled her with the Spirit, then what can keep us from fellowship? Answer? Nothing. The Gospel is put on display in the way we love each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You 
for the hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you for the way that the gospel is indeed put on display in our love for one another. God, help us love each other. It's easy to say amen, and then it's easy to go home and isolate ourselves in our own little corner of the world and just seek comfort. God, it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to go to people that are different from us. Allow us, help us, give us the grace, the strength to to actually want to be uncomfortable in those ways. To want to love across the, the, the barriers so that we might give glory to Jesus who saved all of us. I pray, God, that our neighborhoods around here, Upton, Madison Park, Druid Heights, and Baltimore as a whole, as they see our church, as they interact with us, that they might see, wow, there is a love here I've seen nowhere else. And God, we say thank you for saving Gentiles. Thank you for bringing the gospel to the whole world so that we too might be included in the hope of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.